Chapter Five, Part Six of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kalinda. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter Five, Part Six. The Reform of Cleisthenes. Solon created the institutions and constructed the machinery of the Athenian democracy. We have seen why this machinery would not work. The fatal obstacle to its success was the political strength of the clans, and Solon, by retaining the old Ionic tribes, had therewith retained the clan organization as a base of its constitution. In order, therefore, to make a democracy a reality, it was indispensable to deprive the clans of political significance and substitute a new organization. Another grave evil during the past century had been the growth of local parties. Attica had been split up into political sections. The memorable achievement of Cleisthenes was the invention of a totally new organization, a truly brilliant and, as the event proves, practical scheme, which did away with the Ionic tribes, abolished the political influence of the fratries and clans, and superseded the system of the Nocraries, thus removing the danger of the undue preponderance of social influence or local parties, and securing to the whole body of citizens a decisive and permanent part in the conduct of public affairs. Taking the map of Attica as he found it, consisting of between one and two hundred demes, or small districts, Cleisthenes distinguished three regions, the region of the city, the region of the coast, and the inland. In each of these regions he divided the demes into ten groups called trites, so that there were thirty such trites in all, and each tritis was named after the chief deme which was included in it. Out of the thirty trites he then formed ten groups of three, in such a way that no group contained two trites from the same region. Each of these groups constituted a tribe, and the citizens of all the demes contained in its three trites were fellow tribesmen. Thus Caedithanion, a tritis of the city region, was combined with Paenia, a trites of the inland, and Marinus, a trites of the coast, to form the tribe of Pandionis. The ten new tribes thus obtained were called after eponymous heroes chosen by the Delphic priestess. Footnote. Names of the ten tribes. Erechtheus, Aegeus, Pandionis, Leontus, Acamantus, Aeneas, Cecropus, Hippothontus, Aeantus, Antiochus. End of footnote. The heroes had their priests and sanctuaries, and their statues stood in front of the senate-houses in the Agora. Both the tribes and the demes were corporations with officers, assemblies, and corporate property. The demarch, or president of the deme, kept the burgess list of the place, in which was solemnly entered the name of each citizen when he reached the age of seventeen. The organization of the army depended on the tribes, each of which contributed a regiment of hoplites and a squadron of horse. The Tritus had no independent constitution of this kind, no corporate existence, and consequently it appears little in official documents. But it was the scarce visible pivot on which the Cleisthenic system revolved, the link between the demes and the tribes. By its means a number of groups of people in various parts of Attica, without community of local interest, were brought together at Athens, and had to act in common. The old parties of plain, hill, and coast were thus done away with. There was no longer a means of local political action." Thus, an organization created for a purely political purpose was substituted for an organization which was originally social and had been adapted to political needs. 
the ten new tribes based on artificial geography took the place of the four old tribes based on birth the incorporate tritis which had no independent existence but merely represented the relation between the tribe and the deme took the place of the independent and active fratry and the deme a local unit replaced the social unit of the clan this scheme of cleisthenes with the artificial tritis and the artificially formed tribe might seem almost too artificial to last the secret of its permanence lay in the fact that the demes the units on which it was built up were natural divisions which he did not attempt to reduce to a round number it must have taken some time to bring this reform into full working order the first list of demes men on the new system decided the deme of all their descendants a man might change his home and reside in another deme but he still remained a member of the deme to which he originally belonged henceforward in official documents men were distinguished by their demes instead of as heretofore by their fathers names footnote at a later period it became customary to give the father's name as well as the deme End footnote. all attica was included in this system except eleutherae and oropus on the frontier which were treated as subject districts and belonged to no tribe the political purpose and significance of this reorganization which entitles its author to be called the second founder of the democracy lay in its connection with a reformed council as the existing council of four hundred had been based on the four ionic tribes cleisthenes devised a council of five hundred based on his ten new tribes each tribe contributed fifty members of which each deme returned a fixed number according to its size they were probably appointed by a lot from a number of candidates chosen by each deme but the preliminary election was afterwards abolished and forty years later they were appointed entirely by lot all those on whom the lot fell were proved as to the integrity of their private and public life by the outgoing council which had the right of rejecting the unfit they took an oath when they entered upon office that they would advise what is best for the city and they were responsible for their acts when they laid it down this council in which every part of attica was represented was the supreme administrative authority in the state in conjunction with the various magistrates it managed most of the public affairs an effective control was exerted on the archons and the other magistrates who were obliged to present reports to the council and receive the council's orders all the finances of the state were practically in its hands and ten new finance officers called apodecti one from each tribe acted under its direction it seems moreover from the very first to have been invested with judicial powers in matters concerning the public finance and with the right of fining officials further the council acted as a ministry of public works and even as a ministry of war it may also be regarded as the ministry of foreign affairs for it conducted negotiations with foreign states and received their envoys it had no powers of declaring war or concluding a treaty these powers resided solely in the sovereign assembly but the council was not only an administrative body it was a deliberative assembly and had the initiative in all law-making no proposal could come before the ecclesia unless it had already been proposed and considered in the council every law passed in the ecclesia was first sent down from the council in the form of a probuloma and on receiving a majority of votes in the ecclesia became a psephisma again the council had some general as well as some special judicial functions it formed a court before which impeachments could be brought as well as before the assembly and in these cases it could either pass sentence itself or hand them over to another court it is obvious that the administrative duties could not conveniently be conducted by a body of five hundred constantly sitting accordingly the year of three hundred sixty days was divided into ten parts and the councillors of each tribe took it in turn to act as a committee for carrying on public business during a tenth of the year 
In this capacity, as members of the acting committee of fifty, the councillors were called pretanes, or presidents. The tribe to which they belonged was said to be the presiding, and the divisions of this artificial year were called pritanes. It was incumbent on the chairman, along with one tritus of the committee, to live permanently during his pritany in the tholos, a round building, where the presidents met and dined at the public expense. The tholos, or skias, was on the south side of the agora, close to the council hall. The old pretanion still remained in use as the office of the archon and the hearth of the city. Cleisthenes invented an ingenious arrangement for bringing his official year into general harmony with the civil year, so that the beginning of the one should not diverge too far from the beginning of the other. The civil year was supposed to begin as nearly as possible to the first new moon after the summer solstice, and the difference between the lunar twelve-month year and the solar revolution was provided for by a cycle of eight years, in the first, third, and sixth of which additional months were intercalated. The ordinary year consisted of 354, the intercalated of 384 days. Cleisthenes, taking 360 as the number of days in his official year, was also obliged to intercalate, but not so often. He adopted a cycle of five years, and once in each cycle an intercalary month of thirty days was introduced. But this month was not always inserted in the same year of the cycle. It was here that Cleisthenes brought his quinquennial into line with the octennial system. The extraordinary official month was intercalated in the first year of the official cycle that coincided with an intercalary year of the civil cycle. The new institution of Cleisthenes began to work in 503-2 B.C., the first year of an octennial cycle. The first Cleisthenic year began on the first of Hecatombeon, the first month of the civil calendar. It would not begin on that day again till forty years hence. Footnote. It is convenient to observe that the first year of a Cleisthenic quinquennium begins always in a year B.C. ending in 3 or 8, 503, 498, 493 B.C., etc. In opening the citizenship to a large number of people who had hitherto been excluded, Cleisthenes was only progressing along the path of Solon. He seems to have retained the Solonian restrictions on eligibility for the higher offices of state. It is just possible that he may have set the knights, in this respect, on a level with the Pentacosiomednimini. But the two lower classes were still excluded from the archonship. The third class remained ineligible for another half-century. Footnote. In the appointment of archons, the Salonian method had been discontinued, above, page 195, and Cleisthenes does not seem to have reintroduced it. End footnote. But this conservatism of Cleisthenes might be easily misjudged. We must remember that since the days of Solon, time itself had been doing the work of a democratic reformer. The money value of five hundred medimni was a much lower rating at the end than it had been at the beginning of the sixth century. Trade had increased, and people had grown richer. The new tribes of Cleisthenes led to a change in the military organization. Each of the ten tribes was required to supply a regiment of hoplites and a squadron of horsemen, and the hoplites were commanded by ten generals, whom the people elected from each tribe. Footnote. The office of strategos, as commander of a taxis, was much older, but the institution of the ten strategoi, 501 B.C., was a consequence of the reforms of Cleisthenes. End footnote. The office of general was destined hereafter to become the most important in the state, but at first he was merely the commander of the tribal regiment. The Athenian council, instituted by Cleisthenes, shows that the Greek statesmen understood the principle of representative government. 
That council is an excellent example of representation with a careful distribution of seats according to the size of the electorates, and it was practically the governing body of the state. But though Greek statesmen understood the principle, they always hesitated to entrust to a representative assembly sovereign powers of legislation. The reason mainly lay in the fact that, owing to the small size of the city-state, an assembly which every citizen who chose could attend was a practicable institution, and the fundamental principle that supreme legislative power is exercised by the people itself could be literally applied. But while we remember that the council could not legislate, although its cooperation was indispensable to the making of laws, we may say that its function will be misunderstood if it be either conceived as a sort of second chamber or compared to a body like the Roman Senate. It was a popular representative assembly, and from it were taken, though on a totally different principle, committees which performed in part the administrative functions of our government. It had a decisive influence on legislation, and here the influence of the council on the ecclesia must be rather compared to the influence of the government on our House of Commons. But the ratification given by the assembly to the proposal sent down by the council was often as purely formal as the ratification by the crown of bills passed in Parliament. Section 7. First Victories of the Democracy The Athenian Republic had now become a democracy in the fullest sense, and the new government was hardly established before it was called upon to prove its capacity. King Cleomenes, who was the greatest man in Greece at the time, could not rest without attempting to avenge the humiliation which he had recently endured at the hands of the Athenian people. The man who had pulled down one tyrant now proposed to set up another. Isagoras, who had hitherto aimed at establishing an oligarchy, now, it would seem, came forward as an aspirant to the Tyrannus. Cleomenes arranged with the Boeotians and the Chalcidians a joint attack upon Attica. While the Lacedaemonians and their allies invaded from the south, the Boeotians were to come down from the Mount Citharon, and the men of Chalcis were to cross the Euripus, and the land was to be assailed on three sides at the same moment. The Peloponnesian host under the two kings, Cleomenes and Demaratus, passed the Isthmus and occupied Eleusis, and the Athenians marched to the Eleusinian plain. But the peril on this side passed away without a blow. The Corinthians, on second thoughts, disapproved of the expedition as unjust, and returned to Corinth. At this time Aegina was the most formidable commercial rival of Corinth, and it therefore suited Corinthian interests to encourage the rising power of Aegina's enemy. This action of the Corinthians disconcerted the whole army, and the situation was aggravated by the discord between the Spartan leaders Cleomenes and Demaratus. In the end the army broke up, and there was nothing left for Cleomenes but to return home. His attempt to thrust a tyranny had been as unsuccessful as his previous attempt to thrust an oligarchy upon Athens. For the second time the Athenian democracy had been saved from Spartan coercion. A hundred years hence, indeed, that coercion was to befall her. Cleomenes is the forerunner of Lysander, who will amply avenge him. The Theban leaders of Boeotia had readily concurred in the Spartan plan, for they had a recent cause of offence against Athens. The town of Plataea, on the Boeotian slope of Mount Citharon, was determined to retain her independence and hold aloof from the Boeotian League, which was under the supremacy of Thebes. The Plataeans applied in the first instance to Sparta, but as Sparta was unwilling to interfere, they sought and obtained the help of Athens. This was the beginning of a long friendship between Athens and Plataea, based on mutual interest. Plataea depended on the support of Athens to maintain her independence in Boeotia, while it suited Athens to have a small friendly power on the other side of Citharon, a sort of watchtower against Thebes. The Athenians went to the protection of Plataea, but the threatened conflict was averted by the intervention of Corinth. 
The Corinthian arbitration ruled that Boeotian cities which did not wish to join the league must not be coerced. But as they were departing, the Athenians were treacherously attacked by the Thebans, and, winning a victory, they fixed the river Asipus as the southern boundary of the territory of Thebes. The Athenians acquired, by this expedition, a post in Boeotia herself, the town of Hisiae, on the northern slope of Citheron. On the approach of the Peloponnesian army, the Boeotians had seized Hisiae, and crossing the path of Citheron above it, had taken Ono, on the upper Attic slopes. When Cleomenes and the Peloponnesians retreated, the Athenian army marched northward to check the knights of Chalcis, who were ravaging the northern demes of Attica. The Boeotian forces then withdrew into their own land, and moved northwards too, in order to join the Chalcidians. But the Athenians, who must have been generaled by an able pole-march, succeeded in encountering their two foes singly. They intercepted the Boeotians near the straits, and won a complete victory. Then they crossed the straits, for the Chalcidians had retired to their island, and fought another battle, no less decisive, with the horsemen of Chalcis. The defeat of the Chalcidians was so crushing that they were forced to cede Athens a large part of that rich Lelantine plain, whose possession in old days they had disputed so hotly with Eritrea. But this was not all. A multitude of Chalcidians and Boeotians had been made prisoners. They were kept fettered in bitter bondage until their countrymen ransomed them at two minas a man. We cannot withhold our sympathy from the Athenian people if they dealt out hard measure to those whom the Spartan king had so unjustly stirred up against them. The gloomy iron chains in which they quenched the insolence of their foes were proudly preserved on the Acropolis, and with a tithe of the ransom they dedicated to Athena a bronze chariot. A portico commemorative of this victory was set up within the sanctuary of Delphi. The Athenians dedicated the portico with the arms and figureheads which they took from their foes. So runs the dedicatory inscription found in recent years on a step of the ruined building. It would appear from this that the Athenians captured and destroyed the ships of Chalcis. If the victory had been some twenty years later, Athens would have added them to her own fleet, but she had not yet come to discern that her true element was the sea. The democracy had not only brilliantly defended itself, but had won a new territory. The richest part of the Chalcidian plain was divided into lots among two thousand Athenian citizens, who transported their homes to the fertile region beyond the straits, probably under the same conditions as the clerics of Salamis. These outsettlers retained all their rights as citizens, they remained members of their demes and tribes. The Salaminians were so near Athens that it was easier for them than for most of the inhabitants of Attica to attend a meeting of the Ecclesia, and the plain of Chalcis was not farther than Sunium from Athens. And not only beyond the sea was new territory acquired, but on the borders of Attica itself. This, at least, is the only occasion to which we can well assign the annexation of the March district of Oropus, the land of the people who gave to the Hellenic race its European name. It had come under the sway of Eritrea, had adopted the Eritrean dialect, which it was to retain throughout all future vicissitudes, and was the last part of Boeotia to be annexed by the Boeotian power of Thebes. This fertile little plain was destined to be a constant subject of discord between Boeotia and Athens, as it had before been a source of strife between Eritrea and Boeotia, but it was now to remain subject to Athens for nearly a hundred years. Subject to Athens, not Athenian. The men of Oropus, like the men of Eleutherae, never became Athenian citizens. End of chapter 5, part 7. Recording by Kalinda, in Raymond, New Hampshire, on November 14, 2007.